Hump Day, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Wednesday, so this is an archive show, but it last aired two to ten years ago, so unless you're a hardcore long-time listener, it's probably new to you. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy it. This story was first published on June 9th of 2013, under the headline, The Deplaning of D.B. Cooper, Getting Away with the Loot. Here we go. It was sometime after 6 p.m. on the day before Thanksgiving, 1971, and the man who had just hijacked Northwest Orient Airlines Flight 305 was not happy. The man, who was calling himself Dan Cooper, although he's mostly known today as D.B. Cooper, had been pretty happy a minute or two before when stewardess Tina Mucklow brought him all the stuff he demanded, four parachutes and $200,000. But now things were getting a little sour. One of the chutes had a giant X marked on it. Who knew what that meant? The main backpack parachutes had no D-rings for the front auxiliary chutes to clip to, so they were useless. And the money was in a bag, not a knapsack, as he had specified. And now, it seemed to him, the authorities were stalling for time by pretending to have trouble fueling the plane. The first fuel truck developed a vapor lock, quote, vapor lock, and had to back away. Another came to replace it and developed a, quote, frozen nozzle. Cooper started getting agitated. When he was told about the frozen nozzle, he exploded with rage, threatening to blow up the plane and shouting that a frozen nozzle was ludicrous in a relatively warm place like Seattle and that they were stalling. It shouldn't take more than 20 minutes to refuel a 727, he shouted, and opened up the briefcase and started fiddling with wires as if he were about to blow up the plane. But then a third fuel truck approached and he simmered down. The crew of the 727 was getting angry, too. They were pretty sure the frozen nozzle story was bogus, and they suspected that somebody safely on the ground was playing games. They wished that he or she would stop before they all got killed. Just a few weeks before, the FBI had tried getting heavy with a hijacker, refusing to provide fuel and then shooting out the airliner's tires. It had not gone well. Three people had died, only one of whom was the hijacker. So, now was the Bureau trying to do the same thing again here? No, it was not. Eventually, the plane was full of fuel and ready to go. Cooper had the parachutes and was inspecting them like a pro. He pulled out the Packers cards, checked them out. Of the two main chutes they'd provided, one was a light, sporty chute of the type that recreational parachutists preferred, a square, steerable airfoil, and the other was a burly Navy chute, round and unsteerable and equipped with narrow straps that would hurt when the chute deployed. Cooper ignored the recreational chute and started getting the Navy chute ready to use. He next demanded that the plane take off with the flaps and landing gear down and aft staircase lowered, and that it fly no higher than 10,000 feet. Destination would be Mexico City. When asked how many degrees the flaps should be lowered, he replied immediately, like a pro, 15 degrees. What he was asking them to do was fly the plane low and dirty so that it would be moving slowly enough for him to bail out of. The pilot and crew didn't know this, but 727s had been used this way in Vietnam to perform covert airdrops of goods and people. Was Cooper involved in that operation? Perhaps. He seemed to know a lot about how to do it. They took off again and headed south. 
The plan now was to go to Reno, refuel, and then head to Mexico City. But everybody seems to have known that somewhere along the way, the man was going to bail out. He was busily and professionally strapping on the parachute, a very complicated process that one has to be trained to do properly. He was also tying the money to his waist in a bundle using parachute cords scavenged from the other parachute. Finally, he sent Tina to the cockpit, telling her to close the curtain and turn out the light. Shortly thereafter, he called up to the cockpit to tell the pilots to slow down. He was having trouble getting the aft stair open. They complied. At 8.13 p.m., the flight crew felt a bump, and the cabin pressure fluctuated a bit. There he goes, someone said. Tina called back on the interphone. There was no response. Just to be on the safe side, the 727 finished its flight to Reno. When they got there, the pilot got on the PA system. Quote, We're making our approach to Reno now, he said, according to Himmel's box account. We can land with that rear stairway down, but it may damage the stairway. We may not be able to take off again. Do you need help getting the stairway up again? No reply. So the airliner landed in a shower of sparks and the crash of rending metal before hundreds of wide-eyed onlookers who had heard about the situation on the news. There was no sign of Cooper, no sign of the money, and no sign of the Navy parachute. Cooper had, it seemed, stepped off the back staircase of the airplane at 8.13 p.m., somewhere over southwest Washington. He had, in the immortal words of Portland historian Doug Kent Crispin, quote, Deplaned like a shucksing boss. I had to modify that quote just a little bit because I don't drop F-bombs on my podcast. But you get the idea. Before Cooper had even stepped off the plane, the manhunt had begun. And so had the legend. The story of the skyjacking was crystallizing into a romantic tale of one man against the man. A Robin Hood-type folk legend that still angers some of the people involved, especially the ones who thought they might die by Cooper's hand that night. The legend persists to this day. We'll talk about both of those things next week. Key sources in today's story included works by Jeffrey Gray, Richard T. Tosa, and Ralph P. Himmelsbach. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love, which is in turn a division of Pulplet Productions, a boutique publishing house that specializes in audiobook and regular book editions of stories from the classic pulp fiction era. Robert E. Howard, Algernon Blackwood, Edgar Rice Burroughs, and so on. More info can be found at pulp-lit.com. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license, type CC by SA International 4.0. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Got an idea for a show I should do, or just want to say hi, or maybe you're going to be in Corvallis sometime soon with time for a cup of coffee or a pint of Hammerhead? Drop me a line at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Fresh episodes of Offbeat Oregon History come your way at around 6 a.m. every weekday morning. So if you're looking for the next one, you haven't long to wait. Till then, go fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. (laughs) ¶¶